0: Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Pablo Alonso Capriel, CFO of iCare Benefits which provides Buy Now Pay Later services to low-income factory workers, particularly women in Cambodia and Laos. This isn't your typical point-of-sale Buy Now Pay Later model, but for iCare's customer base, this model makes a huge difference in their monthly purchasing power. Pablo talks about the history of Buy Now Pay Later in Cambodia, the strategic advantage of going deep in a customer segment rather than having massive scale, and how NGOs and investors have played a pivotal role in shaping the local market landscape iCare Benefits was founded in 2013 and is backed by leading global impact investors. You can learn more about them by visiting iCareBenefits.asia. And now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co founder of Brancus. Brancus is a Southeast Asia based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives.
0: Pablo, thank you.
1: Thank you, Amrita. I'm uh, very glad to be here and, um, and have this discussion with you about uh, you know, myself and, and Iker Benefit and the work that uh, we are doing here in the region. So looking forward to it. Great, great.
0: So, Bubble, I actually want to start with your career because it's quite different from what you're doing today. So when we first spoke, you told me about growing up in different parts of Europe, France, Spain, the UK, which I think led you to your early career as a capital markets trader in London. And then in 2016, you decided to make the move to Southeast Asia to work at iCare Benefits. Can you tell us a little bit more about your early career and then how you decided to make that decision to move to Cambodia in in, uh, 2016?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, thanks. Thanks, Amrita. So, uh, yeah, as you rightly pointed out, a, I consider myself a, a European citizen. So uh, I lived in France for many years, uh, Spanish, Spanish citizenship, uh, did a lot of my school years and university years uh, out in the UK. Um, so, you know, as a, you know, I, I, I had obviously the opportunity to, to join one of the biggest banks, you know, in, in, I guess, in the world uh, and, and join their derivatives trading um, desk. And then, so I was trading for many years in the city and, um, and I, was, I, was, I knew kind of Southeast Asia from some NGO work that I was doing uh, on the side with uh, a project in, here in Cambodia that, that my parents are involved in. So I knew Cambodia well, I had a little bit of a, of a local network uh, in, in the private sector that, that, that I could leverage sometimes when I was traveling here for, for visiting this, uh, this, uh, this organization, this NGO. And um, so in, in one of these trips, um, you know, I basically got one of, one of my mentors, Douglas Clayton, who's the founder and CEO of kind of the first big private equity fund out of Cambo- in Cambodia back in the 90s. Uh, they were one of the first investors in a bank before they were actually a microfinance where they went NGO uh, back in the early 90s um, during the UNTAC days. So um, in one of my discussions with, uh, with Douglas, uh, who's been a mentor for me for many years now, Um, He kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, there was this this founder out in Vietnam that was building something really interesting, uh, that they were kind of trying to revolutionize uh, the microfinance and consumer credit industries by providing, you know, at the time it wasn't called by now pay later, that's just a fancy word that, uh, that, you know, that uh, the fintech world has come up with, but at the time we called it an employee benefit program, so we, you know, allowing people to utilize their um, their, their payroll or their salary in order to increase their, um, their capacity to access uh, products and services. So uh, I traveled to Vietnam, spent spend about a week in Vietnam. We visited some factories, you know, talk to, the, to, to talk to the founder and trying to understand a little bit more about, you know, what, what the model was, what they were trying to achieve. What was the, you know, what was the product market fit? You know, what was, you know, what was the market, the target that we were going for? What's the scope, you know, the, the, what's the volume that, 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 that we could go to? And, uh, and then, yeah, and then after and then speaking to my wife, I decided that this was a really good opportunity. And then so we moved out to, you know, we, we moved to Southeast Asia to kind of take uh, take the position and help co- the company growing in the region. Um, so Cambodia and Laos were both launched uh, in the year that I arrived. So we were able to scale the company very aggressively and we were we had three operations at the time, Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos. And uh, now our Vietnamese operation has been sold, but that's kind of been my journey. Um, you know basically local you know somebody calling me and a good mentor calling me and seeing an opportunity and and um, you know for kind of a revolutionary model and and you know and the rest is uh, history as I say
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. that's really inspiring I think as someone else who you know, saw Southeast Asia as a really interesting region and then moved over from the west. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what what that transition was like. I mean, I think it sounds like you've spent time in Cambodia and Southeast Asia before you actually moved. Um, But for those who may not be as familiar with the market, can you describe what that transition was like? Maybe some things that surprised you, especially compared to your experience as a trader in London?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, great question. It's one of the things that I get get asked a lot. You know, this part of the region, and you've been around as well. um, One of the things that for me was the most surprising is um, you know, the world cultures is, is completely different, you know, work, work behavior, uh, acceptable behavior in the workplace, you know, uh, communication, relationships with co-workers, all of that is, is completely, completely different. So I was coming from a background of high aggressiveness, you know, lots of shouting, you know, lots of swearing, uh, very, very face-to-face interactions, you know, very kind of a forced manner, forceful manners. And then kind of the Southeast Asian market is something that is you know diametrically opposed to that kind of behavior so you know there is a, there is a certain respectfulness and 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 and, man, and you know and personal manners that you need to keep at all times in the way that you interact work and collaborate with with employees or with partners or with banks or with uh, suppliers or distributors so for me one of the main one of the main uh, you know changes that i had to adapt with that i had to adapt myself to was the changing in work workplace culture Uh, And, you know, and and I've gotten used to this type of respectful interactions and, you know, make sure that you're never, you're never over, you're never over sentimentalizing anything, you know, to a point where you get aggressive. And that that to me has been crucial. And I I really enjoyed this, that transition, obviously coming from a as I said, hyper aggressive uh, environment back in back in the trading days.
0: That's definitely a diametrically different environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Right. very much so, yeah.
0: Thanks, Pablo for sharing sharing a little bit of that background. Um, let's talk a little bit about the eye care benefits evolution before we get into the business model. Uh, you mentioned I think the operations first started in Vietnam and then expanded to other markets. And I, and this may have been before your time, but would love to know how the company has thought about expanding in the region, which markets are most attractive, uh, why Cambodia and Laos, and then are there any plans to expand beyond that? Is there a sort of a theory of expansion?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the company was launched in, in Vietnam, and then uh, I, if I you know, Laos was the second country we opened, and then Cambodia, and then um, so we we were running kind of a you know a, a Southeast Asia kind of cluster, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Um, so we we decided that um, you know for, for us the target market was very very simply factory workers, because uh, there's a lot of scope, um, there's little geographical dispersion, right? So there's a high density of potential customers, of addressable customers in every single location, right? So factories can range from 500 workers all the way to 50,000 in one location, right? So, you know, high, very high volume, high concentration um, is it, the market that we we're going for. So which countries in the region have this kind of of, you know, of density of, of potential of addressable customer density, um, Vietnam, obviously, you know, uh, very high population of workers, um, highly concentrated in extremely large factories, uh, Cambodia, the same loud to a lesser extent, but obviously, we want to expand our, our regional presence. Uh, we also looked at countries like, um, like Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, but it had to be combined with Um, you know, a a geographically um, small enough country where we could distribute and provide uh, the BNPR services to the entire country within 12 to 18 months, right? So we we wanted to make an impact and provide a countrywide service within 18 months. So, you know, Indonesia is really difficult, Malaysia is really difficult, Philippines is extremely difficult. Uh, So kind of we, we decided that Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos was a cluster where we could grow, become the biggest play in the market um, and then think about you know what else we, we could do. So we, we're, not, we're not a f- company that focuses more on the regional expansion or the world expansion. We are thinking more progression of our product offering um, to, into different types. but we, we can go into that later on.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know I thought about the factory worker angle, like you know countries with that have enough of a population that are working in factories. But I hadn't actually considered the geographic and, and how, uh, you know, an island, an arch, arch, archipelago or a series of tiny islands, how hard yeah. that, that country exactly. might be to serve when you're actually doing the distribution.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's, and that's the main point, right? So, you know, you, you, can, you, you can have highly dense areas, but if logistically it's extremely difficult to get to. Um, then that you know the cost the cost analysis starts stops making sense you know so it, it, you know there there's, some, there's certain metrics that we were looking at at the time and, and kind of the cluster Cambodia Laos Vietnam made a lot of sense you know very high density um, of, of workers very large factories you know good logistical setups to get into you know to the main capital or to the big industrial centers. So yeah, we and then we decided that we wanted to keep the, these countries and grow inside the country's diversified portfolio of products or services and, and grow, the, grow the customer base on a product base rather than a uh, geographical expansion basis. That's, that's really interesting.
0: Maybe just zooming out, the MPL concept, as you said earlier, is not really new. It's, it's kind of been around in different forms for many years. You know, installment payments, employee advances. In, in the US, we called it layaway for many years. When you joined uh, iCare Benefits, you know, how were you thinking about the, the financial concept at that point? Did you think that Buy Now Pay Later was going to become kind of the flashy, you know, trend that we're seeing today? Or, or you know, how were you thinking about the concept of, of Buy Now Pay Later?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a great question. I, at the time, you know, we, you know, we weren't looking. At it as you said i mean it's been around for years and years decades right i mean it's just now it's been adapted more to the e-commerce side and, and, and it's been marketed in a way that that together with e-commerce makes a lot of sense to the wider public right but but bnpl as as an actual financial purchasing model has been around for decades i mean they, you know when we were when i was studying the model back in 2014-15 before i joined um you know when we were kind of when i was brainstorming with the with the founder and how we could do this uh, you know there, there was there's uh, there's villages in Africa, you know, in, in Senegal and Cameroon that have been doing this for decades. So they pull, they basically put a small amount of their salary together with a bunch of 10 families. And, uh, and then every month, one family gets the entire pool, right? Which is ex- effectively the same concept, right? Uh, so you're, 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 you're basically trying to pull resources together and providing someone with an extra pool of money up front to buy something that they need, right? So the concept has been around for decades. Um it's just a question that you know we try to we try to see, okay, so how can we apply this deferred payment model to to the workers, right? Uh, in a way that is sustainable? Uh, so then we come up, we say, well, actually, you know there is you know given the the types of products that they need. So through our research we saw that, the products that these, these workers need range anywhere from $50 dollars all the way to around three, four hundred dollars, right? That'll cover most of the household items that they need. And we said, well, actually, if we do up to six months installments, they should be able to purchase pretty much anything they need within that, within that range, right? So uh, when they, when then we thought, okay, then we defer payrolls. We we, sorry we defer payments. We allow them to we allow them to pay us back within, within the time frame that makes sense to us. That we don't have a big maturity gap obviously in our financing uh that allows us to grow fast enough that it makes sense uh and and that's it and then we went from there so yeah i, I completely agree with you i mean by now pay has been here for uh, has been around for a really long time it's just that you know with with i think with the event of e-commerce and you know it, it's um it's just got there a lot of um, a lot of speed because it tackled with e-commerce uh it, it, you know it, it's going really fast but the actual the actual financial repayment model has been around for decades.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It actually made me think of this book called Debt by David Graeber. It's a great book, and it talks about how debt has actually the concept of debt and buy now pay later has actually been around since before currency, before fiat currency. Yeah, that's what that's what it made
1: me think. About. Yeah, exactly. And there, and there are a lot of examples. You know, they, I mean, in Cambodia, they used to call they used to be called village banks. So um, so basically, yeah, as I said, uh, basically in Cambodia, they used to have something similar back in the 90s, where um, agriculture, um, you know, farmers used to the same thing. They would pull basically a small amount of money uh, in, in, a, in a, what they call a village bank. And then every every month, one of the farmers would get the entire pool of money. Right. Um, and, and kind of the the uh, the indirect collateral is the fact that the farmer lives in the area, has land in the area. So he can't just escape and go somewhere else because the land is in the area, right? So they know the person. So it's kind of an indirect collateral, right? So, so that, you know, so basically it's, it's providing, uh, it's pulled together to provide financing uh, on, on, on basically 0% terms. So um, yeah, I completely agree. It's been around and uh, it's just now, I think we're trying to make it more available to the wider public, right? That's, I think that's the big move and e-commerce obviously is, is the driver of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Pablo Um, for for that, for that uh, history lesson. And I do want to come back to that concept of land as collateral and, you know, how we're seeing that play out, especially with microfinance, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I actually want to dig into the eye care benefits uh, model. So first I, I want to ask a little bit, like, how does the model work? Who are your customers? Obviously it's factory workers, but who are they and how do you really reach them?
1: Right, so it, it, it's a great question. It's, it's the basis of our, of our business, obviously. So for, for us, the, the, the customer is always going to be the factory worker. So uh, if, the, if the factory worker is working at a factory that we know and that we have a relationship with, the worker will be able to, to buy whatever they need uh, on the IQ benefits uh, platform. So the, the, for us, 95% of our customers are factory workers earning between, I'd say, 100 to $250, right? That's, that's our target market. Uh, we specifically target that, as I said earlier, because of the volume of addressable customers and the density of these customers in every single location, right? So that allows us to operate very efficiently uh, to to very little sale points uh, and obviously to hundreds of thousands of workers. Got it. Got it.
0: And, and did I read it correctly that most of your your factory workers tend to skew to be more women?
1: Yeah, that that that's just a that's just a byproduct of of the makeup of uh, garment workers in, in this part of the of the region. So, um, you know, in Cambodia, Vietnam, and, and Laos, seventy to eighty percent of factory workers are women. Um, so, so by 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 you know by you know by segue effectively, eighty percent to eighty percent of our customers are. Are women. Um, you know, they tend to be the ones that work in factories in, in this part of the world. So we are basically helping them but, you know, access products sustainably for themselves and for their families. So we try to adapt our portfolio of products to make sure that we are taking care of, of you know, our customers' needs, but also their families, their parents, their cousins. Obviously, you know, in in, in this part of the world, the households tend to be multi-generational uh, household. Uh, so the needs of the of the main bread gainer which in this case will be the, the women factory worker um, you know falls on their on their shoulders to, to buy the products for everybody else so we try to make sure that we adapt our offering to suit uh, the, the needs of, of, of the women of the women worker
0: Got it got it that makes a lot of sense um, and and so how do you make sure that these products are all affordable to to the factory workers that you're that you're offering products to is the margin coming from the OEMs that you work with? Uh, are you charging a fee? Like what, what it, where's your, your margin coming from?
1: No, so, so we, I mean, we don't charge any fees and that's the point. We, we can see, we're still a social enterprise. I mean, we are backed. Our investors are, um, you know, all, all of, pretty much all of the European DFIs. So NorFund, FinFund, KFW, uh, also the IFC. So we are still a financial inclusion social enterprise. So we, um, we charge nothing to the customer. The ch- customer is always going to access uh, the product at market price. Uh, and basically defer payments through iCare effectively, right? Uh, what we tried to do is flip the script and say, well, instead of you know, again, this was six years ago, but you know, we, we're still very successful at it. And we said, well, instead of charging the the customer the interest, which which is a consumer finance microfinance model, <clears throat> we said, let's flip the script and said, you know, the the distributor of the products want to access this market because the, our customers don't have the liquidity to purchase any of this. So, how can we do um, and to, to allow these, these distributors? Okay, then they should give us you know, a commission or a fee for making the sale on their behalf effectively. So, so, we are able to flip, we've been able to kind of flip the script from the consumer financing to effectively distributor financing. Um, so, they are, it's the distributors of the products that are financing our purchases on our behalf. And we are, we are then giving the customer, the, the women factory worker, 0% interest and market price which is the key here. Um, there's no fee, there's no late payment fees. Um, they're getting whatever the, the market price of the product and then divided by whatever installment term they are they, looking to do.
0: There, there is still some inherent risk in this, right? Like what if yeah. uh, a factory worker leaves their employment, um, you know, terminated for whatever reason, you still have the risk that you need to collect uh, the rest of the installment. So what happens yeah. in that case? How do you manage that?
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's the that's the problematic of of any BNPL, right? So effectively, you're you're only successful as a BNPL if you have a strong enough collection mechanism uh, to collect, you know, over whatever 97, percent of 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 the sell value, right? So uh, it's very easy to sell if if your collection mechanisms are not aligned, not aligned with your sales channels. You you can sell, but you're not going to make any money because obviously your you know, you're, you, know um, you're, you know your your, your NPLs are going to shoot should should upwards so um there's always a risk what we do is we have set up our collection mechanisms in a way um you know that we can collect very very high margins um without you know without putting ourselves in a position where if a worker leaves it puts us at a deficit right he puts us in a really bad position so um you know I, I you know it's it's a combination of working with the factories working with the local banks and and try to find you know and and then ensure that as long as the worker is still working and still is taking a salary iker is going to get you know its installments uh, and that allows us to uh, and that allows us to basically sustainably grow the company without having npls shooting higher uh, but again it's it's a it's it has to be you know your collection mechanisms have to be adapted to your market right so for example you know in europe in the us uh, i don't know how grab does it here but uh, you know in europe and the us people like klarna or tabi or tamara they use credits and debit cards because credit and debit cards uh, you know uh, use is really high in those countries or in those regions in our region in our target customers uh, there's zero percent or very near zero percent debit card or credit card so that is not a collection mechanism that is sustainable for us so we had to come up with an innovative way of collecting that would still al- allow us to collect over 97 98 99 percent of 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 sale value uh, without having again being subject to one worker leaving and causing us a lot of issues. So obviously we look at it on on a macro level, uh, but at the end of the day is having those collection mechanisms strong enough and and aligned enough with your your sales processes so that you're able to collect as much as you can within obviously the local context, which is key, right? What is is bank accessibility? What is credit card accessibility, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Can you actually maybe talk a little bit about some of the repa- the collections methods that, that you use. I mean, we hear a lot, I think, in this part of the world about really predatory uh, collections methods, you know, people banging on your door with a bat or a club. How does iCare think about this, especially being a social enterprise and making sure that you're engaging with factory workers?
1: Yeah, yeah I'll answer that in two parts. The, the first part is, um, it's also a business model differentiation, right? So uh, the difference between consumer finance and the BNPL or, or iCare benefits in this case is that iCare benefits does not... BNPL in general would not have any collateral. So it's effectively a short-term and collateralized loan, right? So even if the customer doesn't actually pay, you can't really claim the product back. So, And that's the difference with, with consumer financing, right? So if the customer doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't pay, the person will go to your house and try to get the item back effectively, right? Uh, so that's what you were saying about predatory behavior, collection, collection behavior. So just from a model perspective, ICARE is already not there because we don't have a claim. We only have an agreement for the person to pay us back. If they can't pay us back for whatever reason, then you know, then it, it becomes obviously a bad debt or non-performing or non-performing loan or asset. So that, that's kind of the first part of the question. Uh, the, the second part is what what we try to do as a social enterprise is make sure that we are developing procedures uh, to make sure that the customer is always at the center point of our of our mechanisms, right? So we are still dealing with low-income workers. We are still dealing with low uh, low information, low education workers, and we need to make sure that our mechanisms are suited to to, the, to their level of information. Right. So, as long as the person still has a salary and still has an employment, IKE will will we'll receive its payments. If the person is not, uh, we'll then try to see uh, we'll try to see the reason for that. Have they moved to another factory? Are they sick? Uh, have they stopped working for whatever reason? And we'll try to find a risk, you know, change repayment schedules to make sure that. We are still able to collect as much as possible, uh, but the worker is not under strain. So, so again, we are dealing with low-income uh, customers, and we need to make sure that our procedures are adapted to that. So, so you know, we 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 you know our, our collection team is very good at um, you know making sure we rather what I'm trying to say is we we always try to find a way uh, to work with the customer to 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 to, to restructure the payments if necessary um, or. Put a hiatus, something you know, during a certain amount of time for them to be able to then continue. So uh, we try to take case by case and make sure that we are aligned. Because again, as you said correctly, we are still a social enterprise, and we want to make sure that our procedures are aligned and that we are not we are not falling into the trap of you know uh, of, of engaging in, in the behavior that we are trying to solve. Right. So we have always, you know, our, our solution was always. To, go, to try to stop this predatory behavior and predatory lending practices in this region. So we're always very careful to not fall into that trap and ensure that our procedures are fit to, to, to our target.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One more question here, and, and you alluded to you know, the Clarinata firms earlier, some of the, more, the Western uh, buy now pay later companies that are focused more on e-commerce and how they have difficulty maybe competing with the same segment. Uh, but, you know, we're also seeing some buy now, pay later companies cropping up all over Southeast Asia, especially in the e-commerce space. How do you think about that as your competition? And do you see uh, care benefits evolving in a similar way, becoming more online? So you'll be you'll be ready uh, if and when it happens, whenever it happens. I
1: obviously. mean, we're we, I mean, we're already working on it. Um, you yeah, know, I mean, we, we I mean, we're already working on the technology. Our, 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 our development team is working on. You know, we call it a closed loop BNPL currently because we are very targeted to, a, to, a, to kind of a, a, customer, a t- customer persona, right? Um, but we're already working towards, we're already developing the platform to be able to do that much wider reach. But we're also working in another way. So we're also st- st- saying, what do our customers, current customers need that goes beyond, you know, beyond a phone or beyond a TV or beyond a rice cooker or beyond a, a bicycle? You know, do they need much more longer term financial planning and financial support? So do they need a motorbike or do they need a car or do they need help with their house deposit? Right. So that's one of the reasons why we've just launched uh, three months ago, our new uh, leasing subsidiary called Iker Leasing. So that's going to allow our customer. So, as I said, uh, you know, uh, as I was telling earlier at the beginning of our conversation for us, it's not just, you know, a growing regionally, it's more upselling continue to diversify product offering and open up our market to the wider buy Op later segment, right? Um, but the upselling part is, is that if our customer has if a BNP a customer has been with us for three, four, five, six years, we should be able to offer them you know, access to a motorbike or car financing or, uh, or, you know, or house deposit financing, right? So that is the journey of IKE benefits. We're not only growing our, our, our customer segments, but we're also upselling to our current customers to make sure that we are capturing, basically, with any household need, need from a fan or rice cooker all the way to house house deposit financing.
0: And you can sort of like grow up together. I think that's a really, that, really
1: great that, way. That is, that, yeah, that is exactly right. That is exactly our vision. So, and, and not only that. And you know, nowadays, um, you know, it's it's by the time that this customer has been with iCare, you know, for five, six, seven years, we already have six or seven years of data on this customer, right? We know every single purchase as they've done. We have a lot of information of on, on, on what you know what what the profile is, what are the what are the purchase types, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because we have a portfolio of products that that gives them access to anything, right? Uh, and then you get into a position where should we ju- should we then go to utilities payments or phone bill payments, right? So it, it it becomes much more a household a house, basically a financing partner, right? A BNPL partner, rather than just a point of sale retailer effectively or payment provider.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really great. You're sort of like the financing partner throughout life.
1: I think that's... That's a... Yeah, exactly. So that's why I was saying that for us, the regional expansion was not as valuable as growing our portfolio of products and services with, with the lives of our customers, right? So that's that was more the the the, the, the vision that we had Rather than just provide a simple buy now related to a lot of countries, so different approaches, different strategies. Uh, but you know, we are trying to see how in Cambodia we can continue towards towards that um, that, that that full range of, of products and services.
0: Absolutely, I think that I think that's great. It's a really innovative model. It's very different from you know what you see a lot of the tech companies doing. But it sounds like it's been very effective for for care. Pablo, I want to spend some time. We have a few more minutes, so I want to actually spend some time talking about financial inclusion in the region, um, particularly Cambodia and Laos, where, where I Care Benefits operates, and also where you know only around 20% of the population is banked. And I know we've talked about how so many organizations talk about sustainable de- development goals, SDGs, and financial inclusion and access. And a lot of these NGOs are actually present in Cambodia and Laos. Can you talk a little bit about the Cambodian market and Lao market, and how NGOs and some of these SDGs and financial inclusion priorities have really shaped the market?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I might have some un- unpopular opinions, but you know, uh, I, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's it's still worth uh, saying. Uh, I, I think SDG has a lot of marketing uh, marketing to it, um, and I think a lot of it is used by international organizations to continue pushing this. You know this uh, not not innovative and not not actually sustainable solutions uh, to 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 these to these problems right so in our case financial inclusion you know there's a lot of talk about how we help factory you know who, who is helping have factory workers and and increase you know and, and wage negotiations increasing by two dollars a year or three dollars per year that's not real financial inclusion right so we in, in in the time that we've been in the region we haven't seen a real you know, we haven't seen international NGOs coming to us and say, this is a model that makes sense. You're, you're helping workers save up to two months of yearly salary interest payments by giving them access to like benefits. We haven't seen that. Uh, and that's something that I feel because, um, you know, international organizations misunderstand uh, the, what, what a buy now, pay later means for for basically uh, for 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 allocation of, of of salary income effectively for the workers, right? So uh, once you look at the data, once you look at our, our impact surveys, you're able to see that we are, you know the 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 purchasing power of our customers increases by on average by two months per year. right? So it means they're saving two months of salary in interest payments. But we we always tend to find that uh, you know international organizations always see, Anything that is buy now, pay later, or anything that is related to fi- financing, inverted commas, uh, as or you're just you're just a bank, you're just a microfinance, right? So we've had a lot of difficulty differentiating ourselves from the pack because we have been bunched together with everybody else, um, and that's been a real struggle. Uh, because in my opinion, uh, you know, iCare has been the solution to financial inclusion for the for all, for the hundreds of thousands of customers that we have. Uh, because we're actually making a difference we've seen massive drops in black market shark loan usage um you know in, in our customers because they've moved to the iq benefits platform uh, as i said our impact surveys tell us that people save on average one to two months of salary in interest payments for a year just because they access iq benefit uh, but unfortunately we've been bundled together with microfinance leasing etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's been something that i i you know i i'm, I'm you know i'm i'm a little bit sad about however goes back to your your first part of your question, you know, we we have found one partner, one bank partner here uh, that that is really sees the bigger picture and how, you know, if we're able to provide sustainable services and banking services, you know, for free to workers, uh, there could be a much, uh, there could be a massive penetration drive uh, for banks for basically customers to become banks and then access something like I benefits. So we are, We've been working for six months now with one of the largest banks in, in the region uh, to start to do as, exactly as you said: the banking with the BNPL service together in one for free, uh, and that's real financial inclusion. You know uh, that, that is a tangible that is a tangible solution uh, to 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 basically people being unbanked and without access to sustainable finance. Uh, sorry for the rant, uh, but you know <laughs> it, it, it is uh, yeah, uh, it is an unpopular opinion, but anyway.
0: Well, actually, I want to, I want to, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And and I want to actually dig into something that you said, you said that you don't like eye care benefits being kind of clubbed together with microfinance. And I think this is, this is an interesting viewpoint because I think a lot of people listening, especially in the U S Europe have thought about microfinance as a concept as being something of a silver bullet, you know, fixes poverty, but and, I, and actually, I should say that like, I actually got my start in fintech looking at financial inclusion and financial health via microfinance. But I think the this landscape in Cambodia and Laos is like very different. Can you talk a little bit about the, the microfinance sector uh, where you're working and why you actually don't want to be branded similarly to a microfinance?
1: Yeah, um, uh, because I think that I can benefit and it's essence sense so of BNPL more, more generally is the solution to, to that problem. I, I do think, I mean, just to caveat that, uh, and it goes back to your point, I do think microfinance, if done well, if well regulated, uh, is is, is, a, is a poverty fighting tool and a, a financial inclusion tool. I think that if well, if well regulated, if well structured, is a very helpful tool. Uh, however, I think that over the years, it has gotten a little bit, a bit of a bad rep because, it has been mismanaged and basically predatory behavior has been used in some countries in unregulated industries uh, to take advantage effectively of of, uh, of, of, of lower income people um, and, and and not, you know, and, and who were not protected by the regulatory regulatory agencies or, or by the wider governments. So um, I do think that certain malicious players have tainted a little bit the industry as, as a whole, but in its essence you know, when it first started in Bangladesh, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, it was a real poverty fighting tool and financial inclusion, tool. I think that that has evolved a little bit. And some, some, some malicious players have, have tainted a little bit the, the, the image. Uh, but to go back to, you know, uh, the second part of your question more on the Iker side, because we are the solution to that problem, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult for, for, for people, you know, UN and other agencies to say yes but you're you're offering you're offering shopping experiences no we're not i mean when you when you earn 160 you're not shopping for an imac you're not buying the latest macbook or the latest iphone you're buying a tv or you're buying your kid a bicycle or you're buying a rice cooker because yours broke or you're buying a fan or a new mattress for your mom or you're buying some furniture for your house so, you know, I think sometimes people lose a little bit the big picture in saying, because they, they kind of assume we're just kind of an Amazon and they say, oh, but you're just selling stuff. Yeah, yeah but you're selling stuff to people that don't have access to this stuff. And for you, it's easy to say they don't need a TV, or, or you, you know, but, uh, but, but that's, that's not the case. I mean, we're selling really, really simple products and, and at, 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 at extremely low prices. Because they need these products, how can you tell a person owning $150 that they don't need a new rice cooker? You know that, that's you know that's it, I mean it's just that's 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 no way. Of course they need it. You know they need it for themselves, for their families, for their kids, their parents, their cousins who live in the house, and that's the key here. Uh, you know how you know we are bundled together by ignorance because they're not actually they think of they think they keep thinking of it as a Amazon or Alibaba style platform when it's mm-hmm. not you know we're we are giving them access to all these really really basic products so we're there's we the solution to the general problem it's just that the it's difficult to get people to change the image of of, of, of that sector effectively
0: right right and, and I think to your point like it if if something becomes affordable to to these types of customers and you know who are we or anyone else to really judge like what they what they what types of products they should be accessing if they want a rice cooker if they want a TV, um, you know they should have that right. I think that exactly. A, and,
1: and the point. point is that we have we have limits in place to make sure that they're don't or they're not overspending, right? Of course we have we have very strict limits and how much they can they can spend given their salary levels. But the, exactly to your point, you know again well, they're not buying IMAX they're not buying MacBooks. I mean these are these are people earning 160 170 dollars per month, right? So the purchases I mean you look at a top 50 I mean there's nothing. Over- over two hundred dollars, right? or two hundred fifty, because right. they're buying fridges, air cons, as I said, mattresses, furnitures, speakers for their house. Uh, you know, uh, you know, very very simple stuff. Uh, right. But you know, we 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 keep getting bundled together with 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 um, with kind of e-commerce or wider e-commerce or or microfinance, and that's the, that's the that's the trick for us is how we should, we are we are trying to differentiate differentiate ourselves and say you no, know, we are the solution to all of that. Rather than rather than another problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's really great, and I I think uh, it's almost like pulling the best of both worlds. You kind of get the best of buy now pay later uh, without. know some of the the competition and other negative dynamics that come with like everything being fully online and and having to scale rapidly across various regions and then also kind of getting the best of like microfinance in terms of like making things affordable and actually meeting the needs um but without getting into the to the predatory stuff
1: exactly no absolutely 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 correct and agree with you
0: that's great We've, we've talked about like the microfinance uh industry we've talked about some of the ngos how they've shaped Kind of the startup environment in, in Cambodia and Laos, but what about some of the other stakeholders that you see, um, particularly the government, um, other private sector players, investors, I think investors have played a pretty important role. How do you see all of these other stakeholders really shaping the Cambodian market and, and Lao market, especially
1: in terms
0: of startups um, that are also aiming towards like financial inclusion?
1: Yeah, no, another great question, Amrita. Um, uh, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, you know, you you have you have uh, you know, obviously the, the private equity uh, venture capital, um, in particular, when the, the funds are European or or, or American or, or Japanese or Korean, uh, have very very high standards, uh, and they uh, they struggle. Uh, they they have very strict mandates, right? So uh, sometimes we see a lot of struggle with. Um, how you know can we fit their mandate or not as I, the same as we said before are you a financial institution or you're not uh, if you're a microfinance you know a lot of the big private equity funds have massive massive investments in microfinances here so you you know they don't want to top up on, on another on another private equity uh, deal with in, in, in the financing side if you're just a retailer uh, then then you're just, you know so it, we, I think there's a lot of there is a move towards, um there's a lot of impact investors coming in and, and trying to develop good ideas and actual solutions to, to the problems that we see in the region um and for i think in that case my investor uh or one of our one of our big investors emerging markets investments is a big private equity fund out of singapore uh, has done really smart investments in, in the in the sort in the social impact space uh, i think they've been very successful in, in, in kind of finding finding companies that are actually making a tangible um, impact in in our customers' lives, and and I commend them for that because they, they're not easy to find, but they've they've done they have a, very, a few very successful investments um, in in kind of the social impact space. So I and I think I think that the wider private equity uh, industry in in Cambodia Laos is moving towards that. Uh, I've seen a lot of drive, a lot of new funds opening and and trying to see that there is value in investing, but investing in sustainable solutions to the problems, right, rather than just for, for, you know, j- j- rather than just for just making money, effectively.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's great to see so much excitement and movement in, in your markets. Uh, I'm really excited to see, you know, what comes next. And actually, maybe this is the, I think we're almost out of time, but maybe final question for you. What are you most excited about in the cambodia Lao markets and also buy now, pay later? What's the most exciting thing that you see on the horizon? And then also what scares you?
1: I mean, well, I mean, what what keeps me happy, I think, it's that um, we definitely have a, an opportunity to make a difference to the wider population as well. As, as you and I discussed earlier, you know, we are working, we are developing the, the technology to, to access the wider, the wider public, uh, you know, the, the kind of the walking POS uh, by now, pay later. So I think I'm very excited about that. I think that's going to be the next step in Ikea benefits, because at the end of the day, our current customers are going to become middle income customers at some point. Um, so we want to have the technology ready to, 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 to do that to service them once they kind of as they grow with us, we want to be ready to service the wider the wider public right so that drive is what keeps me busy it's what 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 keeps keeps me entertained and, 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 and excited for what's next for us. Um, what keeps me you know what what keeps me worried. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm still worried about I'm still worried about you know the a little bit of the. You know, the, the COVID situation has put, has created a lot of economic strife in the region. You know, there's a lot of factories closing, a lot of people are out of work. Uh, there's still a lot of indebtedness in, in, in Cambodia with the banks and, and the microfinance providers. So I have a lot of concern there. Uh, I hope that the governments will take action to make sure that industrial capacity remains high, industrial production remains high. We, you know, the, there's, a, there's good macro policy to bring producers here and use utilize the facility and the infrastructure that is already here uh, so that Cambodians can get back to work. You know, I we estimate, ICA estimates that about 150 to workers have lost their job and have not got, gotten a new one. Uh, you know, that's a lot of that's a big part of the that's a big part of the of the working of the working uh, sector, right? So I'm really worried about that. I'm hoping that as you and I discussed off, off uh, offline, uh, I'm really hoping that the governments take, you know, the necessary actions around the COVID situation to make sure that we're not getting ourselves in a hole where we can't get out. of. That's, that's what I'm worried about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us share that same worry, but, um, you know, I, I think it, big thanks to organizations like iCare for making life more affordable and, and easier for people who are, you know, the most vulnerable, especially when it comes to COVID. So thank you. You know, thank you and the iCare Benefits team for that. Um, oh, probably- thank you, Amrita. Very kind um, Paulo, thank you um, so much for your time today. I think that's all, all the time we have, but this has been a really fun conversation. So thanks to you. Thanks to our audience for joining this episode of The Green Room. Please write to us with your comments and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Amrita, for having me. Really enjoyable conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors.
2: Everyone. my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular Apexplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apixplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apixoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time, and uh, look forward to seeing you there.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritavere.com to get more information, join our mailing list, or just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com and follow our Instagram handle greenroomfintech. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.